You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on English explorer Francis Drake. Before we get going, I want to remind everyone that you can go to our website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to see a map of the places that we will visit in today's episode. While on the site, you can link over to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash explorerspod, as well as our Twitter account, which is at hashtag explorerspod. You can also donate to the podcast while you're on the site. Anything helps, even a buck or two. All donations go to a good cause, this podcast. Thanks again to all those who have helped out. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. So, that gets us to part two in our Francis Drake saga. Last time, we covered the early life of Drake, his upbringing amid the early years of the English Reformation, his life as an apprentice seaman, and then his work as a young sailor and officer on ships plying the coastal trade routes of Western Europe. After that, we followed Drake as he became involved in the slave trading ventures of his second cousin, John Hawkins. The episode concluded with the defeat of Hawkins and Drake at the Battle of San Juan de Ulua in 1568. This defeat left Drake, who we have seen was a very religious and righteous man, angry and bitter towards Spain and the Catholic Church. He vowed vengeance against the Spanish crown. So, for today's episode, we are going to follow Drake as he becomes a full-fledged pirate, Between 1570 and 1573, he would make three voyages to the Caribbean and in the process become one of the most feared and hated men in the Spanish Empire. Our episode will climax with his audacious attack on the Spanish treasure caravan in Panama in 1573. So with that, let us roll. The year was 1569. Francis Drake and John Hawkins had returned from their ill-fated expedition to the Caribbean, having lost all but two of their ships and hundreds of men. As we discussed in the last episode, their two ships had been separated after the Battle of San Juan de Alua, and each captain had made his way home independently. However, that was not without controversy, as Hawkins felt that Drake had abandoned him. The bitterness may have strained the two men's relationship, but it would not destroy it. So, in the aftermath of the voyage to the New World, Drake was a man bent upon revenge. Revenge against the Spanish for betraying them at San Juan de Alua, revenge against King Philip, whose policies were seemingly an insult to England and revenge against the Catholic Church and the Pope, who Drake literally viewed as the Antichrist. Now, it is important to understand that Drake was not the only one who had these attitudes toward the Spanish Empire. This antipathy had been growing for decades within England, and Drake was part of an angry and vocal element that were proponents of action against King Philip in Spain. We should note that France had been England's traditional enemy. 
But the rise of Spanish power in the world was changing that, and now the battle lines throughout Europe were not necessarily being drawn between nations, but between religions, specifically Protestant versus Catholic. All of this would lead to conflicts throughout Europe, including the Netherlands and France, as well as England. While the enmity between Catholic Spain and Protestant England would grow, it would not erupt into all-out war, at least not yet. Instead, each side maneuvered to advance their own agenda and gain an advantage over their rivals. Now, a big issue between the two nations would be the rebellion in the Netherlands in 1568. Remember, the Netherlands were part of the Spanish Empire at this time. The Dutch Revolt, as it was called, was, as you can imagine, drawn upon religious lines, Catholic versus Protestant. The English would support the Protestant rebels against Philip by providing funds and supplies. English ships would contract out as privateers, harassing Spanish shipping. Spain would respond by banning English ships from ports in the Netherlands, a serious blow to British merchants who depended on these markets. And in England, they watched with apprehension as a Spanish army operated in the Netherlands, a mere 100 miles across the Channel. Many saw plots and threats everywhere, and in some cases, their suspicions were justified. All of this was a shadow war, England and Spain tweaking each other in any way that they could, all the while trying to avoid real war. This made for an increasingly toxic relationship between the two nations. And into this boiling tempest came men such as Francis Drake. After his return to England, Drake and John Hawkins proposed expeditions to exact retribution on the Spanish. They said, hey, the Spanish cheated and then attacked us and cost us lots of money. It's only fair that we be allowed to go and get some of it back. Queen Elizabeth's advisors were sort of like, um, no. Tensions with the Spanish were high enough, and the last thing they wanted was Drake and Hawkins sailing around looking to get revenge. It just wasn't the smart play at this time. In the future, perhaps, but not in 1569. So that left Francis Drake to his own devices, and he was actively plotting his revenge. But before we set out to sea with Drake, it is time to get the man married. Yes, in 1569, Francis Drake would get hitched. He wed Mary Newman, a woman who we don't know much about. Some sources say she was from London, others say she was Cornish. No matter, she was likely not of high birth or status. Drake was, after all, still a minor figure. Yes, he was making a name for himself, but there were the accusations of him deserting Hawkins hanging over his head, and he certainly wasn't rolling in money. Drake and his new bride would reside in Plymouth, and Francis would go about organizing an expedition to the New World. Now, this new expedition would not be for trade. Drake was not going to go to Africa and get slaves and take them to the Caribbean. No, Francis Drake was going to up the stakes. Sure, he wanted to go to the New World, but he wanted to do nothing so civilized as trading. Instead, he wanted to create havoc. He wanted to punch King Philip II of Spain in the nose. Again, the English crown wasn't quite ready for such a thing, and would not section his, or anyone else's, expedition. So, to accomplish such an enterprise, Drake would need money. It doesn't appear that the Hawkins family would help Drake at this juncture, which is understandable. But remember, Drake was a charismatic and resourceful man, and there were men who felt as Drake did about the Spanish. In the end, his reputation must have been such that he could put together such an endeavor. With that in mind, Francis Drake would round up investors in a scheme to head to the Spanish main, where he planned to punch King Philip II in the nose. Now, before we set off with Drake, I'm going to answer a question many of you probably have just asked, and that is, what exactly is the Spanish main? I mean, we've heard the term in the movies and in books, but what exactly does it mean? Well, the Spanish main is essentially the coastal regions of the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, and especially, at least for this story, the northern shore of South America and the area of Panama. These had been the areas that Hawkins had targeted in our last episode. Much of the wealth of the New World came from this region. 
So with that in mind, let's talk Drake's first voyage to the Caribbean. The first thing I will say about it is that we barely know anything about the expedition. And when I say barely, I mean barely. Drake gathered two ships for the venture, the 25-ton Swan and the Dragon, which likely was similar in size to the Swan. The ships had no more than 50 men combined. As I said, we don't know where he got his financial backing, but he somehow managed. Drake's goal was to raid the New World. Now, he did not have the backing of the English crown, but he could have gotten a charter as a privateer from another entity, such as the Protestant rebels in France or the Netherlands. This was not a difficult thing. Just go down to the office, sign the papers, and voila, you are now a privateer flying the flag of whatever government gave you the documents. But Drake waved all this aside. He was going to the New World to simply plunder, something no Englishman had done to date. Yes, there were pirates operating in the Caribbean, but they were mostly French. Now, Drake was looking to be the first English pirate on the Spanish main. The beauty of being a pirate is that it's a lot simpler than being a merchant. You don't have to buy goods or capture slaves or whatever. You just go and find your enemy and take their stuff. You don't need cargo ships or have to negotiate with the officials of each port. Of course, this also means that if you make a mistake, it could be your death. But Francis Drake understood something very important. The New World was rich, but it was not well guarded. He had experienced this. Its greatest defense was its remoteness. Therefore, Drake understood that if you got there and had some well-armed ships and some determined men, there was good money to be made. So, this first voyage is, in all honesty, a bit disappointing. And that's because we don't really know that much about it. Drake and his two ships departed from Plymouth sometime in early 1570. In later years, Drake barely talked about this expedition, saying the voyage was more of a reconnaissance mission. This may have been true, but let's be honest, a guy like Drake was not going to cross the ocean to just look around. In all likelihood, Drake probably did try to do some pirating, but he probably just did not have that much success, and thus he downplayed the entire affair later in life. Spanish records do show that there were some ships lost to pirates and attacks on towns during this time frame, but nothing major. And the one mention of Drake may actually reference his next voyage. In the end, we just don't know exactly what Drake did on this voyage, but even if it was minimal, it would provide valuable information for him and help prepare him for his next endeavor. So, that literally wraps up the first voyage of Francis Drake. As I said, anticlimactic. But it sets the stage for his next enterprise, which will be much more engaging. Francis Drake would depart on his second voyage to the Caribbean in late 1570 or early 1571. He would have only one ship, the 25-ton Swan. Swan, while small, was likely reasonably well-armed. She would have had a crew of about 25 to 30 men. Drake also carried with him a pinnace. A pinnace is a light boat, propelled by oars or sails. A pinnace could be just about of any size, but the ones that Drake used were larger, with a tonnage of about 10 tons. They could carry as many as 20 men, and could even have small guns mounted on their bow. While not usually ocean vessels, they were perfectly fine sailing along the coast and up rivers. It was not uncommon to bring a pinnace across the ocean unassembled, which is what Drake did. Once in the New World, he would put the thing together and have a second small ship at his command. Now, who backed Drake financially for this expedition is unknown, but since it was just Drake and a single ship, it may have been the same person or persons who had backed his 1570 voyage. Drake would reach the Caribbean by February of 1571. He would return to the region he had prowled the previous year, coastal waters of Venezuela, Colombia, and Panama. The difference between this and his last voyage was that he now had a better understanding of the area. He knew the routes the Spanish ships took. He knew the strengths and weaknesses of the region's settlements. And he knew what rivers and harbors were safe for him to hide out in. On February 21, 1571, 
Drake would spot a frigate en route from Cartagena to Nombre de Dios. The latter was where the Spanish held much of the loot brought east from Peru and Bolivia. It will play a very large part later in this podcast. The frigate was an unarmed supply ship and was anchored off the coast. The English approached the ship in the pinnace, which was loaded with about 15 to 20 men, including Drake. The pinnace had two small guns mounted on its bow. The Spanish, despite being lightly armed, prepared to resist. As a note, the Spanish main was increasingly being attacked by French pirates. These pirates were notoriously ruthless, and the merchant ships were terrified of being seized as the French usually left no survivors. No doubt the Spanish expected the same treatment from Drake. The frigate resisted boarding, but the crew was only armed with a few swords. The English opened fire with their arquebuses, killing several men in the process. The Spanish, in order to stop the boarders, cut the anchor's rope and allowed the ship to drift toward the shore. The crew would jump ship once it neared land, and the men fled into the jungle to avoid capture. Drake and his crew would loot the ship of anything of value. Before departing the scene, Drake would leave a note taunting the Spanish. Now, let's take a moment to understand why Drake was concentrating on this specific region. It all had to do with the gold and the silver and the jewels that came from Peru and Bolivia, and were transported to Spain. Here's how it worked. The Spanish would bring their goods to Panama City, on the Pacific side of Panama. Twice a year, all this loot, silver, jewels, gold, pearls, would be hauled overland from Panama City to the town of Nombre de Dios, where the Spanish treasure fleet would be waiting. The fleet would load up and then head home with the loot, which was critical to supporting the Spanish Empire. Now, all of this treasure had to be hauled by mule across the isthmus. Along the way, the mule trains would stop at a small outpost called Venta Crucis, located on the Charas River. From here, much of the plunder would continue via land, but some of it would be loaded onto smaller boats and taken down the Charas to the Gulf of Mexico, and then along the shore, about 40 to 50 miles, to Nombre de Dios. Drake would dare not attack Nombre de Dios at this point, but he had taken note of a weakness in the transportation chain. Drake sailed up the Charas River in the pinnace, and reached Venta Crucis, where he seized all sorts of goods on the dock. He also captured and destroyed several transportation barks, as well as just caused general mayhem. Now, Drake didn't get much gold or silver. Instead, what he had seized were trade goods and provisions, which still had significant value. For the next few months, Drake and his two ships would terrorize the region, captured more than a dozen small vessels, seizing their cargoes and sinking the boats, unless he had some use for them. The Spanish, of course, tried to confront Drake, sending three separate missions to track him down, but no luck. Drake would hide when he needed to hide, and he was quick with his attacks and quick to withdraw if things weren't to his advantage. In June of 1571, Drake found a secluded anchorage to the east of Nombre de Dios, a place he used to refit his ships. He called this port Pheasant. Here, he cached some supplies for the future, as he was already plotting a return voyage. He figured to use Port Pheasant as a secret base. With that, Francis Drake would decide it was time to head home. He had a ship loaded with loot, and it was time to cash in. Drake and his men would return to England sometime in the fall of 1571. Drake's ship was loaded with only the best goods that he had seized on the Spanish main. There was, of course, some gold and silver and other valuables, but the trove was mostly merchandise. One source put the value of the haul at 60,000 English pounds, more than what Hawkins had made in all of his slaving voyages combined. And we can't forget the cost to the Spanish. It wasn't just the goods he had stolen, it was the ships he had sunk, the merchandise he had destroyed, the deaths he had caused, and the general disruption of shipping and communication in the Caribbean. Drake had, in all honesty, punched King Philip right in the nose. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? 
and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With his return, Francis Drake would find himself a successful man, his fame growing. And he now had a bit of money. In England, they celebrated his bold venture. In Spain, they cursed El Drake. Drake's success would open the door for other Englishmen, men who realized that there was a lot of money that could be made by preying on Spanish ships in the New World. Drake's biographer, John Sugden, called this the Great Age of British Piracy. Of course, Drake wasn't going to sit around and let other men torment the Spanish. It would not take him long to organize a third voyage to the Caribbean, and for this expedition, he had in mind a scheme as audacious and bold as anyone could imagine. But let us not get ahead of ourselves. We need to set the stage for all of this fun. For this expedition, Drake would have the backing of the Hawkins brothers, indicating that any bad blood between Drake and John Hawkins had faded. Drake would command two ships. The first was Pasca. It came in at 70 tons and sported a dozen guns. It had a crew of 50 or so men. Drake would command Pasca, while his younger brother, John, would command the 25-ton Swan, the latter back for a third voyage. Another of Drake's brothers, Joseph, was part of the expedition as well, but we do not know what capacity he served. In all, there were 73 men between the two ships. Almost all of them were 30 years or younger. Life at sea was brutally hard at times, and it was rare to see someone over the age of 40 as part of a crew. The two ships would be well-stocked, carrying provisions for a year. They would also have with them three pinnaces, which they would put together once they reached the New World. Drake departed from England on May 24, 1572. The two ships crossed the Atlantic in good time, reaching Dominica in Guadeloupe on June 29th. Next, he headed to Port Pheasant, the secret base he had set up before departing the Caribbean the previous year. Drake had cached many supplies at this secluded location. Unfortunately, when Drake arrived at Port Pheasant, he found his cache of supplies and goods gone or destroyed. There was also a message, this from an English sea captain named John Garrett. Garrett was a Plymouth man who had come to the Caribbean to get rich off the Spanish. He had with him some men who had been with Drake the previous year, and they had led him to this hideout. Drake found a lead plate nailed to a tree. It had a message from Garrett warning Drake to stay away, as the Spanish had found it and taken anything of value. Thus, things had not started off that well for Drake, but he was not one to be put off by such things. He ordered his men to put together the three pinnaces as they readied operations in the area. It was at this time that Drake and his men would sight a small ship, and upon investigating, found it to be commanded by another Englishman, James Ronce. Ronce and Drake were familiar with each other, as Ronce had sailed with John Hawkins. He had come to the Caribbean to fight the Spanish and make some money, just like so many other Englishmen. In addition to his small ship, Ronce had two unarmed Spanish vessels, prizes from his activities. The two men agreed to team up, with Drake leading the fleet. They now numbered three armed ships, three pinnaces, and a pair of unarmed merchantmen. There was now over a hundred men at Drake's disposal. Drake sailed along the coast of Panama and proceeded to do what he did best, harass the Spanish. At one point, the English would capture a pair of Spanish ships, and on board were some African slaves. From the slaves, Drake found that the town of Nombre de Dios had been fortified over the past year, in response to the raids in the area by men like Drake. 
But let's remember, this is Francis Drake. Despite the Spanish being aware of pirates like him, despite their increased security, despite building better fortifications, he fundamentally understood just how vulnerable a place like Nombre de Dios was when the treasure fleet was not in port. And just as important, he understood how effective one could be when one was bold and assertive. With that, Drake planned his attack on Nombre de Dios. Now, before we get started, we have to understand one very important thing. This was not the time of year when the Spanish in the town were sitting on a hoard of loot, waiting for the treasure fleet to arrive. That time had passed. The Florida had come and gone weeks before. But that didn't mean that Nombre de Dios was not a great prize. Drake divided up his fleet for the attack. He would take the three pinnaces and another light boat, along with 75 men, and sail close to the town in the dark of night. The men were armed with arquebuses, bows, spears, and shields. The plan was to strike quickly, attack at dawn, rout the Spanish, and load up on as much treasure as possible, and then retreat. James Ronce would lead a ship into the harbor, where he would be a distraction to the defenders, and dissuade any Spanish ships that might think about following the attackers. Drake and his men would approach the town as planned, but sensing the anxiety in his troops, he began the attack several hours early, when the moon was behind the clouds. Things went quickly. Drake left a dozen men to watch the boats and secure the retreat, while the rest poured into the town. Drums and trumpets were sounded to signal to Ronce that the attack had begun, and to add to the confusion. Things would go well for the English. The town's battery of guns was only guarded by a single soldier, and it was quickly taken. As his men swarmed into the town, Drake split them up into smaller groups, further adding to the confusion of the defenders as they couldn't pinpoint where the attack was actually coming from. The Spanish garrison tried to rally, but Drake's plan had worked perfectly. They were confused and disoriented. A few men would make a brief stand, firing at the attacking English, before routing into the surrounding jungle. The town was in Drake's hands. The English casualties in the attack had been minimal, but one of those casualties was Francis Drake. It was not a serious wound, but he hid it from his men, at least at first. Treasure was now what the English wanted, but they had to move fast. It was only a matter of time before the Spanish rallied their men and counterattacked. The surprise assault had worked beautifully, but Drake and his men would not be able to stand up to a large force of soldiers once they were organized. In one of the storehouses, the English would find the treasure of the Potosi mines, silver, bars and bars of it. It was said that the silver was stacked 12 feet high, 10 feet wide, and 70 feet long, thousands of bars weighing 35 to 40 pounds each. This was treasure. However, it was not the treasure that Drake wanted. Silver bars were heavy and bulky. It would require time to move, time the English did not have. Drake ordered the search for treasure to continue. He wanted gold and jewels and pearls. It was here that Drake's condition worsened. His wound had not been staunched, and he had lost too much blood, which would eventually cause him to collapse. The men, reluctant to go forward without their captain, elected to retreat to the boats. The attack on Nombre de Dios was over. Captain Rance, once the fighting had begun, had taken a Spanish ship in the harbor. When the attack ended, he retreated, leading the boats to the Bastimentos Islands, about 175 miles west of Nombre de Dios. The attack on Nombre de Dios had succeeded, but the treasure they had gotten was minimal. The English had experienced only a few casualties, while the Spanish records put their losses at between 15 and 30 men. Now, a few things about Drake's attack on Nombre de Dios. First, it put the entire Spanish main on alert. It demonstrated that no place was safe. Every port and outpost went about improving their defenses. At Nombre de Dios, the Spanish sent 100 extra soldiers to protect it. Second, James Ronce, the English captain who had accompanied Drake on the raid, departed after it was concluded. And third, in the attack on Nombre de Dios, an African slave, who we only know as Diego, 
begged Drake to take him with him when the English retreated from the town. Drake would let the man come along, and Diego would become one of the English captain's most trusted and valued men. Diego spoke English and Spanish, a valuable skill. Also, as he was black, he could pass himself off as a slave, allowing him to scout locations without arousing suspicions. And finally, he would prove to be a key in forging a partnership between Drake and the other escaped slaves in the area. But we will get to that shortly. Drake's biographer, John Sugden, said of the man, quote, Diego figures more prominently in the English narrative of the voyage than any other individual, barring the two Captain Drakes themselves, end quote. So, after recuperating from the daring attack on Nombre de Dios, Drake decided to do something equally bold. He took aim at Cartagena, the most important and largest Spanish town in the region. While it did not have a large garrison, Cartagena had formidable defenses, including a stone fortress and a powerful battery of guns. There was no way Drake could breach the walls of the fortress, but that doesn't mean he couldn't punch the Spanish in the nose, which, as we have seen, he loved to do. On August 13th, Drake would lead two ships and three pinnaces into the bay at Cartagena. Now, Drake had no illusions about taking the fort, or even the town, but in the harbor there were prizes to be had. The English silently approached and boarded two Spanish ships under the noses of their enemy. After taking control of them, the English towed the two ships out to sea and out of range of the Spanish guns in the fort. Both ships were promptly looted and burned. These last two incidents illustrate Drake's flair for the daring. Few others would have sailed right into the bay at Cartagena and stole off with a pair of prizes as he had done, and no one had ever attacked Nombre de Dios. Again, this shows Drake's boldness. So, after the attack in Cartagena, Drake would hang out in the area and make a nuisance of himself. He drove the Spanish crazy, as they did not have ships that could catch him. But disrupting Spanish shipping wasn't at the forefront of Drake's agenda. For him, the retreat at Nombre de Dios burned in his mind. The big issue was that the best treasure wasn't in Nombre de Dios unless the Spanish fleet was there as well. And if the Spanish fleet was at Nombre de Dios, trying to attack the town was futile. There were just too many ships and too many soldiers to overcome. So Drake's mind went to where the weakness of the Spanish was, which was not at sea or at the town. Nope, Drake got it in his mind to attack the Spanish treasure trove before it reached Nombre de Dios and was loaded onto the treasure fleet. He set his sights on the great mule train that left Panama City twice a year. Hundreds of mules, laden with not just silver, but with gold and jewels and pearls, and other precious stones, would make their way across the isthmus, over mountains and rivers, and through jungles and swamps. This was the treasure that Drake wanted. He just had to figure out how to get it. The first thing Drake did was to scuttle one of his ships, the Swan. The small vessel was in bad shape, and Drake decided it was a liability and had her sunk. I should mention that shipworms were a curse in these waters. We've talked about them in other episodes, but shipworms are a kind of mollusk that literally bore into wood that is immersed in seawater. Termites of the sea, they are called. Shipworms were really destructive in the warm Caribbean waters. If Drake decided to scuttle Swan, shipworms may have been the culprit. The other reason could have been that he simply did not have enough men to man all of his ships and pinnaces, and the Swan was the least valuable of these vessels. Next, Drake headed for the Gulf of Uraba, near the Panama-Columbia border. Again, you can see a map of this at explorerspodcast.com. The small fleet would find a secluded location to repair their ships and boats, gather provisions, and most importantly, find some allies. For the latter, Drake sent his brother John and Diego to search out the escaped slaves of the region. These were called Cimarrones. Another term used is Maroons. The Cimarrones were fugitive African slaves who had banded together. Now, this was not just a few guys. There were whole towns and villages of these men and women, 
sometimes numbering in the thousands. The Cimarrones had intermingled with the local peoples and created their own distinct society. The life these people had was very hard. Capture for them meant death. This desperate nature made the Cimarrones a very fair people, as they preyed upon their former captors and treated them as brutally as they had been treated. Thus, the Cimarrones had one very important trait in common with Francis Drake, and that is, they hated the Spanish with a passion. So, as attempts were made to engage the Cimarrones, the English would spend time trading with the local natives, recuperating from various ailments, and refitting the ships. Drake had four storehouses built, so that he could stash all the goods that he was acquiring in his raids. Drake had his ships make occasional forays into the Gulf and prey on any vessels that dared to travel without an escort. In time, John Drake and Diego would return, having made successful contact with the Cimarrones. The fugitive slaves had heard about Drake, and when approached with the idea of helping the English attack the Spanish, the Cimarrones were all too happy to be part of the venture. The Cimarrones were like the ultimate insiders of the region. They knew all the side trails and the paths. They knew where everything and everyone was located. It was exactly what Drake wanted and needed. From the Cimarrones, Drake learned the specifics about how the Spanish transported their treasure. As noted earlier, from Panama City on the Pacific coast, the loot was loaded onto hundreds of mules. The mule train then went overland to Venta Crucis. Here, some of the loot would be loaded onto barks and transported down the Chadas River, and then along the coast to Nombre de Dios. But the majority of the treasure continued on the caravan overland, a difficult and slow journey. The time was September of 1572. The Spanish fleet was not due for another five months. This would give Drake plenty of time to plan his daring attack. Drake would take his force, both English and Cimarron, to an island closer to his intended target. On this island, the English and Cimarron worked side by side to build a small fortification, naming it Fort Diego. Thus, with his advance base set up, Drake only had to wait for the right time to strike. During this lull, Drake would not be idle. He would sail off and lay in wait for prizes. Treasure was always welcome, but it was provisions that he needed most. Making sure the men had enough food was always a challenge for Drake. It was during one of these episodes that a Spanish ship passed by the English base. Drake was absent, but his brother John was on the island, and he saw an opportunity. He ordered his men to one of the pinnaces and led them in pursuit of the prize that had come so near to their lair. As the English came alongside the ship, the Spanish tried to repel the boarders, shooting off what weapons they had. One of the English crewmen was hit by a harpoon and killed, while John Drake would take a shot to the stomach. With John Drake incapacitated, the English called off their attack. The younger Drake would die within the hour. Francis Drake's desire to punch King Philip in the nose had, up to this point, been a success. But now, it had just cost him in a very personal way. Francis Drake would make sure that his brother's share of the treasure from the venture would be delivered to his wife upon their return to England. The next few months were spent preparing for the raid on the Spanish treasure caravan, as well as harassing Spanish shipping. The dearth of warships in the Caribbean was costing the Spanish dearly. It was also during these months that the fleet would be struck by illness, likely yellow fever. The disease would sweep through the men, and when it was done, roughly 40% of the crew were dead, including Drake's other brother, Joseph. The island they had established their advance base on was redubbed Slaughter Island due to the high death toll. Despite the losses, Drake was not dissuaded from his goal of attacking the Spanish treasure caravan. This demonstrates the confidence and charisma of Drake, also his obsessiveness. He had lost nearly half of his men, including two of his brothers. Still, the men had faith in their captain, and he in them. The tragedy had not dimmed the zeal that Drake possessed, and the men retained their own belief in their captain. 
In February of 1573, Drake would finally get the news that he had been waiting for. The Spanish flota had arrived at Nombre de Dios. Once word of its arrival reached officials in Panama City, the caravan of loot would begin its journey across the Isthmus to Nombre de Dios. In short order, 48 men, including 18 English and 30 Cimarrones, marched into the interior of Panama. The sick and injured were left behind on Slaughter Island, as this would be a hard and difficult journey. The path across the Isthmus, which was cut by the Cimarrones, would lead the small force through jungles and swamps and over mountains. By the way, the leader of the Cimarrones was a man named Pedro. Again, Drake focused on where the Spanish were weak. He wasn't going to attack the port. It was now too heavily guarded. Drake would hit the Spanish at their most vulnerable on the remote trails crossing the Isthmus. The combined force of English and Cimarron would march inland for three days before reaching a Cimarron town. Here, the men enjoyed a brief rest, feasting on maize, fruit, and meat. Next, the small army would continue for four more days. It was during this march that, on top of a high ridge, Drake climbed a tree and beheld the Great Sea to the west. It was the Pacific Ocean, and Drake was the first Englishman to set eyes on it. Drake immediately grasped the possibilities that were before him. It is said that, upon seeing the Pacific, he beseeched God to give him a ship to sail upon the sea before him. And he will, but that will be for a future episode. Back to our story. Drake was now within a day of Panama City. He sent scouts ahead and discovered that the great mule train, loaded with treasure of all kinds, was being ready to depart the city. This was what Drake had expected. He set up his men in the Cimarrones to ambush the mule train about 15 miles from Panama City. The idea was to attack the caravan simultaneously from the front and back. This way, the caravan could not flee in either direction. Unfortunately, Drake's plan would go south when one of his men would be spotted by a scout on horseback. The scout, upon seeing the Englishman, was able to reach the column of mules and warn his superiors that something was amiss. The Spanish would halt their advance and send out men to investigate the situation. For Drake, this must have been disheartening. Months of preparation had just been ruined by one impatient man. With surprise out of the equation, a retreat was ordered. The column of men would march back to the Gulf Coast of the Caribbean, moving quickly so that the Spanish could not catch them. Drake and his men took the main road, as they could go quicker than if using the jungle trails. Drake and his men would pass through the small town of Ventacharas, which consisted of about 50 homes, some storehouses, and a monastery. Some fighting would occur before the Spanish withdrew from the town. Several Spanish soldiers were killed in the melee, as well as a priest. On the English side, one man was killed and several wounded. Drake would be amongst the wounded, but it was minor in nature and would not affect his ability to lead his men. Ventachadas was looted and burned. The retreat back to the Gulf was a difficult one. The English had been away from their home for more than a year, and their health was not the best. During the trek, the Cimarrones would have to aid many of the English, but their support never wavered. In fact, Drake would praise his Cimarron allies, saying, quote, These Cimarrones, during all the time that we were with them, did us continually good service. End quote. On February 23, 1573, the men would reach the Gulf Coast and reunite with the rest of the fleet. The expedition, which had arrived in the Caribbean a year ago with 73 men, was now down to 30 men. So, you may think that Drake's plan was thwarted, but you would be wrong. Again, this is Francis Drake. He was the kind of person who seems to have had the ability to shrug off disappointments and setbacks and dive right back into the task at hand. Drake still wanted the Spanish treasure caravan. He believed that attacking it on land was the best way to obtain success, and thus he began to plot out his next move. It was now that Drake would come into contact with Guillaume Le Testu, a French cartographer, explorer, and privateer, just like Drake. Le Testu was about 60 years old and a veteran of the New World. He had been sailing the Caribbean waters for almost 25 years. 
They test too, like Drake, was an ardent Protestant. The two men respected and admired each other. They test too had an 80-ton ship and commanded 70 men. The two captains would quickly strike a bargain. They would attack the Spanish treasure caravan together and split the hull equally. This time, the attack on the Spanish mule train would happen as it approached the town of Nombre de Dios. Drake figured the Spanish, as they got near the town, would let their guard down. The plan was to strike quick, grab the loot, and retreat before the Spanish in town could counterattack. There were, of course, many risks involved. Attacking the mule train so close to Nombre de Dios meant a lot of Spanish troops were nearby. But Drake felt the company could outrace and outwit the Spanish. The Cimarrones knew the best trails, and the Spanish would take hours to give chase. Meanwhile, the English ships would be hiding from the Spanish fleet if they came looking for them. The raiding party would consist of 15 English, 20 French, and some Cimarrones. The combined force would land about 18 miles from Nombre de Dios, at a spot identified as River Francisca. Drake ordered his pinnaces to return to the mouth of the river on April 3rd to retrieve them, and the hoard of loot that they expected to be carrying. From here, the men would march through the jungles, reaching Nombre de Dios on March 31st. The attack would happen the next day. Now, I have read that the ambush happened as close as a mile from the town to as far as seven, but I really can't figure out the specifics. But to be honest, it really doesn't matter that much. Drake and Latestu would lead an attack on a caravan of 200 mules guarded by 45 Spanish soldiers. The plan was the same as the last ambush. Hit the front and the back of the mule train, force it to stop, and give it nowhere to go. Unlike the previous ambush near Panama City, this attack was a total surprise. The mule train was brought to a standstill, and the Spanish soldiers were quickly killed or fled the scene. In the fighting, one Cimarron was killed, and Guillaume de Testu was injured, taking a shot to the stomach. One of the French pirates, as well as a Cimarron, would be separated from the group in the aftermath of the melee. So, with the Spanish on the run, Drake and his force quickly took charge of the mule train. It would be impossible to carry it all. There were 15 tons of silver alone. Drake would order the silver buried and focus on the other treasure, such as gold and jewels some of it the personal property of the King of Spain. It was said that the gold alone was valued at 40,000 English pounds, which was one-fifth of the Queen of England's annual revenue. So, with the good stuff in hand, it was time to get away from the scene of the crime. The Spanish would come eventually. And indeed, the Spanish were on their way. A company of soldiers marched from Nombre de Dios, hot on the heels of the English and their allies. Unfortunately, Le Testu, the French privateer, was in bad shape due to the bullet he had taken. At some point during the retreat, his injuries forced him to stop. He could no longer continue and had to rest. Carrying him would only aggravate his injuries, not to mention slow down the rest of the column. Thus, Letes II elected to hide out in the jungle. He hoped that with some rest, he would eventually be able to rejoin Drake and his own countrymen. Two of his men volunteered to stay with him, while Drake led the rest of the force to the boats. Drake and his men would have a difficult march to their ships, but they had the jump on the Spanish, and the Cimarrones knew the best route through the swamps and jungle. Also, a heavy rain would fall that night, helping obscure the trail. On April 3rd, as planned, Drake and his men reached the mouth of the River Francisca, where the pinnaces were supposed to be waiting. But much to everyone's dismay, they were not there. This was a potential disaster. The logical assumption was that the Spanish had come to the rendezvous point and seized the ships. Despite his men being downhearted, Drake rallied them. He was not the kind of person who hoped someone would figure out a solution to the problem. Instead, he came up with a solution and implemented it. Drake's answer was to build a raft and sail it to Slaughter Island, where he would get one of the remaining ships. Thus, a raft was quickly built. Drake asked for a few volunteers to accompany him on his desperate journey. Two Frenchmen and one Englishman raised their hands, and in short order, the four men sailed off into the Gulf of Mexico. 
This is a very telling moment about Francis Drake. I mean, he had just built a makeshift raft and was sailing out into the Gulf of Mexico. Spanish ships were everywhere. Yet there he was, with three volunteers, doing what he needed to do to get things done. It is a testament to his character. He could have easily ordered some of his other men to set out on this risky voyage, but he had not done so. He had led the way, and others had joined him when asked. We have seen this with regard to Drake throughout this podcast. He leads the men in attacks. He leads them through the jungle. It's no wonder his men loved and respected him. He was the kind of man who wouldn't ask someone to do something that he wouldn't do himself. Again, it's a testament to his character. Drake's little raft had gone about 10 miles when he sighted a pair of sails. To his relief, he found that these were the two pinnaces who were supposed to have met with the raiding party at the mouth of the River Francisca. When Drake boarded one of the ships, it was said that the crew thought the worst of the situation, as Drake and his companions were ragged-looking and beaten from their experience. Seeing the worried faces of the men, Drake reportedly held up a necklace of gold and said, quote, Our voyage is made, lads. End quote. It was not long before the ships reached Drake's force, and the men and the treasure was on board. Francis Drake had just accomplished the most daring act of piracy on the Spanish main. In truth, Drake had been very lucky. In the wake of the attack on the caravan, the Spanish had actually had ships out looking for Drake and his men. In fact, the Spanish had even been pointed to River Francisca by a Cimarron. Remember, in the aftermath of the attack on the caravan, one of the Cimarrones had been lost. Well, the Spanish had captured that man, and he had told them about the rendezvous location at the mouth of the River Francisca. Some ships of the Spanish flota had come to the spot, but had found nothing. Likely believing the Cimarron's confession was false, they had moved on, continuing their search for Drake. It turns out powerful winds had kept the pinnaces from reaching the rendezvous, and thus the English had avoided being discovered by the Spanish. In fact, a second group of Spanish ships would come to the rendezvous point on the River Francisca again, but after Drake and his men had departed. This meant that Drake had dodged not just one, but two Spanish forces. Now, in the aftermath of the attack on the Spanish caravan, I have read two different narratives. The content is pretty much the same, but the order gets mixed up. The two events are, one, the French take their half of the loot and depart, and two, Drake sends some men back to the spot where they buried the 15 tons of silver, hoping to retrieve it. At the same time, they would go looking for Captain Le Testu, hoping that the French privateer had managed to survive his injuries. In one version, the French leave pretty much right after getting back to their ship. In version 2, the French go with the English to get the silver and their captain. I like to believe in version 2. I mean, 15 tons of silver? People are inherently greedy. They wouldn't pass up a chance for that. Plus, the French would probably have wanted to find out about their captain's fate, you would think. But again, these are pirates. Remember the code. No matter, I will go with version 2 for our story. So, about two weeks after the attack on the treasure caravan, Drake and his allies decided it was safe to head back to the spot where they had buried the 15 tons of silver. They hoped to retrieve the silver and finally test two. Well, everyone was pretty much in for some bad news, on both counts. Remember, two of Letestu's men had stayed with their captain when he could not continue on their retreat. Well, when the English arrived back at the location, one of these men, who we will call French Pirate Number 1, would emerge from hiding and recount the fate of their captain. The Spanish had chased the raiders and discovered the three Frenchmen. French Pirate Number 1 had fled, hiding in the jungle. Le Testu and the other man, who we will call French Pirate Number 2, were captured. The Spanish would torture French Pirate Number 2, who would reveal the location of the silver they had buried. So, sad to say, no more treasure for Drake and his men. French Pirate Number 2 would then be executed. As for Le Testu, well, he was badly injured, and in the eyes of the Spanish, a pirate. Thus, he was executed as well. 
He was then beheaded and his head put on a stick back at Nombre de Dios. So Captain Letestu was dead and the 15 tons of silver was gone, save for 13 bars which the Spanish had missed. The only one who made out of this whole thing was French pirate number one, who was no longer stranded in the jungle. So good for him. And so with the great raid on the Spanish caravan complete, Drake decided it was time to pack up and head home. Drake had two small but solid Spanish vessels that he decided were the best options for crossing the Atlantic. He did not have enough men to handle more than two ships. Thus, he decided to give Pasca to a group of Spanish prisoners he held on Slaughter Island, so they could return to their people once Drake had left. I'm sure Drake looked at it as an act of chivalry on his part. Drake would also have the pinnaces burned, although he would make sure the ironwork would be given to the Cimarrones, who valued it highly. He would also give gifts to Pedro and the other Cimarron leaders, their alliance was now done. All parties had benefited from the arrangement. Now it was time to head home. Francis Drake had left England with 73 men. Only about 25 to 30 of those would return. Amongst the dead were his two brothers. Diego, the slave who had joined Drake at Nombre de Dios, elected to go with Drake to England. He would be Drake's ally and companion until his death. Drake and his men would return to Plymouth on August 9, 1573. His third voyage to the Caribbean was complete. Francis Drake returned to England in triumph. He had single-handedly taken on the great Spanish Empire, disrupting commerce, causing mayhem, and flat-out robbing King Philip. It was likely a satisfying punch in the nose. His fellow countrymen cheered his success. Of course, Spain was upset by Drake's actions. Their protests to the English crowns were duly logged and then ignored. So, that basically wraps up Drake's three voyages to the Caribbean. To be honest, there isn't a lot of exploring going on, but I have to say, it was all pretty fun. Now I have a few comments about today's episode. First thing, Drake was no longer a minor player in England. He was a hero and a role model. He will become an increasingly important figure in the nation going forward. Second, Drake had grown tremendously as a leader during these past few years. He had emerged as a bold and charismatic individual, one who engendered loyalty and trust. And he was now one of the most capable and energetic captains in England. Third, Drake now had some money. His voyage had given him and his investors hard currency. And this is important. He had not just brought home goods to be traded or sold. He had taken gold, silver, pearls, and jewels. I mean, you bring back wine and cloth and whatever that's worth 20,000 English pounds, that's great. But you still have to find a buyer to convert that to hard cash. There is only so much to be made from that. But gold and silver, that is what any good thief desired. So make no mistakes, Drake had done well. The take from the Spanish treasure caravan was worth at least 20,000 English pounds, probably more. By the way, as a side note, you don't have to feel sorry for the Spanish in all of this. Sure, they had lost some treasure. Sure, Drake had been a pain and cost them time, resources, and lives. But the treasure taken at Nombre de Dios mounted to maybe one-twentieth of the yearly take from the New World. Not insignificant, but not crippling either. Now, our fourth point about this episode is that it sets up Drake for our next adventure. Remember, when he had been marching over the mountains in Panama, he had climbed a tree and seen a mighty sea to the west. Drake understood that this region was the vulnerable underbelly of the Spanish Empire. That would be his next destination. So, that is it for today. Next time, we will take you on Drake's most famous voyage, one that began as an expedition to harass the Spanish on the west coast of the Americas, but will morph into the second circumnavigation of the world. Now, one final note before I leave you. If you like good old adventure movies, I want to recommend a 1940 film starring Errol Flynn called The Seahawk. It is one of my all-time favorites. 
Flynn plays a roguish English sea captain, very loosely based on Drake. At one point, he plots to rob the Spanish treasure caravan in Panama. That sounds pretty familiar. Anyhow, it is oodles and oodles of swashbuckling fun, and I highly recommend it. So that is it. Thank you for listening to part two in our series on Francis Drake. I will see you next time.